did this to you last week. But let's see if we've gotten a little bit faster. Let's see if we've gotten a little bit faster this morning. Who would like to name two of the plagues? Yes. Okay. Blood. Frogs. And uh, you have been perfect in putting them in chronological order. So, is there anybody else who would like to take the next plague? What's the next plague? We had the gnats. Gnats. And what is sort of... This pen is bad. What's sort of like gnats? They were... The next one, flies. Okay. So it flies. Then what came next? Alright. <clears throat> we had the livestock. What was after the livestock? So the livestock was attacked and then what happened? Okay, on the people, right? Then where do we, so we've got one, two, three, four, five, six. What were the two that Greg talked about last week? Locusts. What was the ninth? Darkness. And so somebody just said, hail. So there are nine of the plagues in chronological order this time. Very good. And uh, what's going to be the final one? <clears throat> Death of the firstborn. Okay, so we are now to our tenth plague. And I want you to remember something. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, verse 23. And so the Lord is speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, there has been already, already God has said what is going to happen. Okay, already God has put this plan in motion that is going to end with the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son. Okay, the, the person that's next in line for the throne. So God has already said this, and now we're about to see this plague executed. Um, so let's start in chapter 11. Let's start in chapter 11. <clears throat> in the first three verses, 
Now, um, the plague of darkness, Moses had gone, if you look back in chapter 10, Moses had gone into Pharaoh and uh, they had had this very contentious conversation at the end. We read, then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Now, that's ironic because there's darkness, right? Darkness. So they can't, okay, Pharaoh can't see Moses. Um, Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Okay? Now, it looks like we're about to have another conversation, right? So... Moses said that Pharaoh was never going to see his face again. So how do we kind of rectify this uh, conversation where Moses says, you're never going to see my face again. And now in, in, uh, in chapter 11, uh, they're going to be talking again. Well, this must be part of the same conversation, right? This must be part of the same conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. So it would be like if, uh, if you had... A conversation with somebody and you were, thought you were done. And you said, oh, yeah. And by another thing, now this was a contentious conversation, one of anger in a sense. Okay. And, uh, remember that, that, uh, that they are, they are sparring at this point And Moses says, you're never going to see my face again. And another thing. Okay. And another thing. All right. So now Moses is going to tell Pharaoh, about what's going to happen, okay, the death of the firstborn, the final plague. So um, let's start uh, reading. We'll start with verses 1 through 3, and, uh, and then we'll talk about those for a second, and then we'll move on. Um, chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he was going to drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. We read back in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, that this was going to happen too, that God had told Moses, when you guys are leaving, you're going to plunder the Egyptians. And here's how they're going to do it. They're not going to steal anything. They're not going to take anything. They're just going to ask people for it. They're going to say, hey, you know what? We'd like to have some of your gold. And the people of Egypt are just going to give it to them. Okay? So that's what's happening. They're just asking for silver and gold, and the Egyptians are capitulating. They're going to just give it to them, which is kind of neat. This is kind of neat. Um, now, let's, let's think about this for just a second. Let's think about this whole kind of concept for just a second. Now, some people and some commentators would say that this, this was wrong, okay, for the people to plunder Egypt. Now, one of the most common answers to this kind of um, uh, ethical dilemma, if you will, would be that, hey, those people, the Israelites, were working extremely hard as slaves and they were getting nothing. So this would be a due payment of what they were already owed 
by the Egyptian people for all of their years of servitude. Okay? So that may be, that may be a good explanation for what's going on here. Okay? But you, at any rate, you have to remember that what the Lord is doing, whatever it is, is right. So, uh, there's really no real reason for us to try to justify the Lord's actions in our mind because when these commentators say that this was maybe unfair, what they're doing is they're looking at this situation from the lens of a sinful man. So I don't know exactly what was going on here. It may well be that this was a payment for their time in slavery. But even if it wasn't, we can trust that the does what is right. So you may pick up a commentary on Exodus sometime and see somebody wondering how in the world this could have been just and ethical on God's part. And let's just say right here that we can never call that into question. Whatever the Lord does is right. But it may well be that this is simply going to be a payment for the time of their slavery. Okay? Now, another thing that we might kind of delve into a little bit here, is that um, notice at this particular point, God is giving the people favor. Okay, He's giving them favor. And it says that the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So, at this particular point, Moses and the Israelites had found great favor in the sight of the Egyptians, right? But at previous times, they had found a great frown from the point of view of the Egyptians, hadn't they? So, a few chapters ago, remember, that they were made to make bricks without straw. And their servitude was so massive, the weight was so weighty, that they would refuse to be comforted even when Moses approached the elders and said, God is going to deliver you. They refused to be comforted with that because of the weight of the great slavery or servitude that they were forced to, to, to undertake in Egypt. I think we can make one major point here. If there's a time of favor or... If there's a time of frown that has not put God off from his covenant, right? Doesn't matter externally what's happening to you right now today. It doesn't matter whether providentially you are in a time of favor where the people around you and your life is going great or whether you are experiencing a time of great frown where the providence of God has led you to a place of suffering, right? So some of you today feel a providential smile from God. Things are going great. Some of you here today feel a providential frown from God where things aren't going your way. But that doesn't put God off from his covenant. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in him and his sacrifice for you, it doesn't matter whether 
the frown or the favor is what you're partaking of at this particular moment in the providence of God. Your eternal destiny is secure. You can't read, you can't read your relationship with God necessarily. You can't read your relationship with God based on providence. You have to read your relationship with God based on His Word. Right? Whoever believes in me will not perish. That is far more secure. When you're trying to discern your relationship with God, that promise is sure. Losing your job, having cancer, getting married, those providences aren't secure, right? Those providences aren't secure in reading your relationship with God. Now, they're blessings any way they come, really, right? But just remember, you can't discern your relationship with God based on providence. You have to look at the Word of God. That's your rock. That's your rock that you're going to stand on. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the Word, too. Let's think about it for a second. Think about some of the great saints that struggled. Think about David. You know, he had been anointed king, hadn't he? He was anointed king long before Saul started chasing him down to kill him. He experienced great difficulty and sometimes it would, it looked like they were hemmed in and Saul was going to catch him and he was going to kill him, didn't it? Okay? But he could look back at the promise of God. God had sent his prophet to anoint him as king so David could rest sure. Now there's got to be a lot of tense times where he was wondering, boy, maybe I didn't see that. Maybe that, you know, his faith had to have been shaken at some points. Okay? But when he was being chased by Saul, certainly he looked back and went, wait, God has anointed me as king. And I know that he will bring that to pass. Let's think about Noah. Noah stuck on a boat. Right? He stuck on a boat with a bunch of animals. And they're rocking and tossing all over. Now that didn't seem like a smiling providence of God. But it was God who told him to build the ark. And so he knew that when those times were tough, that God was going to lead him out of it. He knew that he was secure in God. What about the thief on the cross? What about the thief on the cross? Well, Today you'll be with me in paradise. He had those words of Christ as a bedrock. Even though he's hanging on a cross, dying right next to the Lord. And don't you suspect, remember Jesus died first, and don't you suspect that Satan let him have it after Christ was dead? Don't you suspect, he said, that guy wasn't the Son of God, he's dead. He didn't come down off the cross. He's dead. 
How is it that he said, how can you trust that today you will be with him in paradise when this guy is dead? But the thief on the cross had the promise of Christ. Today you will be with me in paradise. And we could talk about tons of saints. Abraham, Paul, Job, on and on. The saints that didn't see their relationship with God, okay, who didn't base their relationship with God on the frowning providences that they were under. They, they based it on the word of God. And we need to do so too. We need to do so too. The word of God is our safety. That's our safety. Not our cars, not our house, not our spouse, not our children. The word of God is our safety. Is our safety. Growing up, growing up, my dad was sometimes very pleased with me. And my dad was sometimes very displeased with me. Sometimes very pleased. Okay? I did a lot of great stuff. But I was unconverted growing up. I did some very bad stuff. I was selfish. Sometimes pleased, sometimes displeased. But you know what? I always felt this in the presence of my father. I always felt a sense of safety. I always felt a sense of safety around my dad. I still feel that sense of safety today. Still feel a sense of safety when I'm around my dad. Sometimes he's pleased with me. Sometimes he was displeased. But he was always my safety. And that's the way the Word of God is. Sometimes we get a sense that we're really living for Christ. Sometimes the weight of our sin overwhelms us, but the Word of God is always our safety. Well, anyhow, there are the first three verses. Don't read. Don't, don't try to discern your relationship with God based on either frowning or favorable providences Base your relationship with God, where you stand with Christ. Base it on the Word of God. Well, let's read chapter 4, verse 4, excuse me. Chapter 11. We're in chapter 11, those of you who just showed up. We're in Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. All right. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Well, here comes Yahweh's final stroke of the decreation of Egypt. So, these plagues right here have been signs, have been plagues, and really one of the things that's going on that we've seen is there's been a decreation of Egypt. Water, instead of giving life, has become death. Right? Animals are not subject to man anymore like they were in creation. Light has been canceled out. Light was created okay, during creation. And now there's going to be the death of men where during creation there was the life given to man. Now there's going to be death of man. So, God in bringing these plagues is really decreating Egypt. And remember we said a few weeks ago that God, He is sovereign. He is coming at them like the military. He's come through water. He's come on the land. And He's come through the air. He has, those are the three major theaters of any war, right? Water, land, and air. He's coming at them from all directions. He is the perfect destructing force for Egypt, right? He's decreating Egypt. Now, in this particular case, we've been seeing that he's, all, he's also not only judging Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. What else is he judging? Who, who else is he judging? Has he been judging Look at uh, look in chapter twelve, verse twelve. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So not only is he judging the nation of Egypt, but he's also judging their gods, right? So he's been decreating Egypt in an act of judgment on those people and on the gods that they served. Osiris. Osiris in Egypt was the god of death. Now remember the Egyptians, they, they were fascinated with death. To the point that they build these huge pyramids, yes. Okay, huge pyramids to bury the dead. They were fascinated with death and they had a god of death who was Osiris and he was called the Mighty One. who He who has sovereign power. So remember, as Greg said last week, that you had this sun god who was Ray. Ammon-Ray. And now you've got Osiris, the god 
of death who has, quote-unquote, sovereign power. So God is also judging these gods. He's judging Pharaoh. Pharaoh was seen to be like a god to the Egyptians. In fact, they said that when Pharaoh died, he would become a god, a child of Ray and Osiris. So Pharaoh was supposed to be um, a god when he died. So God is judging the gods. God is judging Pharaoh. And note that this is a very fitting judgment. Why is this death of the firstborn son of Pharaoh a very fitting judgment for Pharaoh? Where did we start when we started way back in chapter 1? What was happening at the beginning? Oh, yes. These were being thrown into the Nile River. Right? So this is going to be incredibly fitting punishment for Pharaoh. So God is judging Pharaoh, a very fitting punishment. He's judging the gods of the Egyptians. And you know what? He's also going to be judging, because it says here that it's going to happen from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. It's going to happen to all the Egyptians. He's judging the gods, he's judging Pharaoh, and he's judging every Egyptian family. Now, why is he judging the Egyptians? Why, why would you think he's judging the Egyptians? Is this, is this fair for him to judge these Egyptians? It was Pharaoh, after all. It was Pharaoh who said they couldn't go. In fact, some of the, some of the people who served in Pharaoh's court have kind of been going, why aren't you letting them go? Let them go! Pharaoh had a hard heart. So it almost seems, it would seem that some of the Egyptians, and they're the ones that are giving the spoils away too, right? So it almost seemed like, you know, the Egyptian families may be spared. This was Pharaoh that was doing all this, um, all these wicked things in the eyes of the Lord. What do you think? Was it fair for God to judge the Egyptians? Corporate. Ah. Okay. Representative, the representative headship of Pharaoh applies to them. Okay. Remember, we're under the representative headship of, well, Christ now, but naturally we're born into Adam, right? Okay. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, Romans 5, 12. So in one sense, Pharaoh is their representative head, but in another sense, you know, they were truly idolaters. They were truly idolaters. They were worshiping all of these false gods, right? And you know what? The scriptures will get to a point where it does say it does seem to indicate that some Egyptians followed the Israelites up out of the land of Egypt, but not all of them did. Why didn't they all bow the knee to Yahweh and join the nation of Israel? Because they, too, were obstinate in their sin. And let us never forget that the scriptures teach that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin 
death. Any sin. The wages of sin is death. James 2.10 Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet not offend at any one point, and yet offend at any one point, he is guilty of all. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends one small part, he's guilty of it all. So let's not forget that these Egyptians are idolaters, they're sinners too, and they have to stand before a holy God. And that holy God is now going to judge them for their idolatry and their sin. Even if it's just one sin, as James said, we are worthy of damnation forever. Because if we offend at any one point, we're guilty of busting up the whole of God. Right? The whole law. So these Egyptians are going to be judged too. And he went out from Pharaoh, no, and, and verse 8, And all these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Well, last week, as Greg spoke on on what's going on here with the plagues, he said... There's a reason for so much. There's a few reasons for so much suffering in the land of Egypt. First, so that they would be without excuse. Second, that the fame of God would spread. Third, for posterity. So we would tell, they would tell their children. Last, that they would understand the Bible. I've got one more, I believe, to add to that. To add to that list that he gave you last time. Notice, notice that it says, that um, about midnight, in verse 4, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. God is going out into all the land of Egypt, right? He's going out into all the land of Egypt. One of the biggest wonders here says that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. It strikes me that one of the biggest wonders, if God is going out into all the land of Egypt to execute judgment on the firstborn, what do you think? What is the biggest wonder here? What's the real wonder? If he's going out into all of Egypt to execute judgment, what's the real on sinners? Ah, including the Israelites. When you think about the wonder here, the wonder is that he spared the Israelites. Now, we talked about the Egypts being idolaters, okay? And not leaving when they've, with the Israelites when they've seen all of these wonders. Now, let's talk about the Israelites for a second. Let's talk about the Israelites for a second. This, this group didn't have a great resume. Their resume was not impressive. Remember when they had to make bricks without straw? Remember when they had to do that? What did they do? 
they were angry with Moses. They were waiting on him when he got out of the meeting. Like, what have you done to us? You have made us a stench in Egypt. They were hot about it. They were angry. Where was their faith in the promises of God? And remember, when Moses reapproaches them, they wouldn't listen to him because of their broken spirits. Where was their faith? And then we can go on in Joshua 24, verse 11. God says in Joshua that the people needed to put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Put away those gods your fathers served in Egypt and serve the Lord. Apparently, these Israelites were also following after the idols of Egypt. They too were chasing after and worshipping, and they were still worshipping the idols. Even when they got to the promised land, and God's having to remind them, put them away. In Leviticus 17, verse 7, God chastises them because they've been serving and sacrificing to a goat demon. So they're idolaters just like the Egyptians. And then we could get into the fact that they wouldn't enter the promised land. That they made a golden calf to worship. That the, that, not the sons of Korah, but that, um, that these families were swallowed up by the ground because of their rebellion against Moses and Aaron. That they complained about their lack of food constantly and water constantly. That they committed sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. The list goes on and on and on. These were not a very pretty people. So the wonder here, the wonder here, one of the ones that I, the wonder that I get when I read this is that the Israelites would have been spared. That God would have remembered His covenant. Why would God have made this distinction that as the Israelites leave, the Word says that not even a dog is going to bark against them. This is a bunch of people leaving. This is a bunch of 600,000 men with all their livestock, with their wives and their loud children, and not even the dogs are going to bark against them. God's making this distinction between His people that He has a covenant with, even though they're sinful, sinful people. And let me ask you a question this morning. Let me ask you a question. Do you meditate on this? Do you still see one of the greatest wonders of the world being that you were saved by Christ? That He would have gone to the cross, the Lord of glory, because He loved you so much, He would die for you. Have you lost that wonder? Have you lost that wonder? Remember, you become a new Christian and you meditate on this all the time. I remember it. I remember the freshness of being a new Christian. And my love for Christ. 
because of what he did for me and how I couldn't believe that he would have saved me. Me. One of the most selfish and still one of the most selfish people I know is Rob Burris. Gosh. It's terrible. Rob Burris. God would save a guy like Rob Burris. We often forget, don't we? We often forget. I see students around UNCW. They're just like I was in college. Sometimes I look at them and go, man, and I hope for that guy. They're They're too far gone. I was more gone than they even think about being. Seriously. Where's my wonder? Where's the wonder of my salvation? Meditate on it. Think about your sin. Think about your sin. And you'll see the great glories of Christ. You entered into the Christian life with a knowledge of your sin. That's what forced you to the Savior. So don't shirk away from thinking about your sin and the wonder that God would save you. A guy named Pavo, and I can't even pronounce his last name, Rustalenen from Finland, had written this in his Bible. It says... In this book lies the secret and kernel of the whole of life. And no one, neither the good nor the clever, can know or understand this great and precious secret when his eyes have not been opened to his own wretchedness. The whole Bible is about grace and the forgiveness of sin. And it's a wonder. It is a wonder. Well, whoops. Let's move on. Now, I know that Greg and I were were doing a chapter a time. I know that. But uh decided I'd... Steal some verses out of chapter 12. Steal. I did run it by Greg and he said, feel free to do that. Because chapter 12 is a very long chapter. Okay. Um, so let's um, look at verse. I was going to go through verse 20, but um, I am running out of time and I believe we want to stay here for just a second. Let's um, now let's start reading about. Passover, the Passover. Um, God is about to spend a lot of time talking about the Passover. Okay, so we're going to talk some about it, and I'll—I guess I'll just kind of get the ball rolling a little bit today, um, and uh, and kind of point us where we're going to go. But let's read uh, in chapter twelve, the first thirteen verses. Um, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. 
tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it from the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning shall you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What I'd like to do first, I think, I'm I'm, I'm scrounging for time here. I think what I'd like to do is make a couple of comments about verses 11 through 13 first. I think I'll start there. I think I'll start there. It's the Lord's Passover. It's the Lord's Passover. It's the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So let's talk about this Lord, the Lord's Passover for a second. Let's talk about the purpose of the Passover. So the purpose of the Passover, and then as time permits, we'll drift back and we'll talk about the particulars of it. So we've got a lot of rules here, little, little distinctions that we need to follow. Okay, so let's talk about the purpose, and then we'll talk about the particulars as time permits. The purpose. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of the Lord's Passover? I always like to use different colors. Okay, so the Lord's Passover. Oh, nice pen. What's the purpose? There's a twofold purpose. What are they? To save his people? Okay. And how that's how's that working out here? How is it working out? So let's look at verse uh, 13 for a second. There's a sign for you. 
Okay, so there's a purpose. He's going to use this definitely to save the people, save the firstborn. Okay, and part of this Passover purpose, we've got one purpose for you. One thing, one part is for you. Right? And then it looks like there's another purpose for God. So the blood shall be a sign for you. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. So there's a purpose for you. For God. Two things going on with this blood of the Lamb. Something for you. Something for you. There's something for God here. Okay, let's start with the for God thing because I, I, for the for God thing. Let's start here for a second. There's a word that Greg uses to, you know, help our vocabulary out. And, uh, it starts with a P and you've heard him say it before. Who said that? Ah, Tanya. Say it louder, more loudly. Propitiation. Can you spell that, Tanya? I'm kidding. Okay. Propitiation. Actually, serious, I'm, a, I'm the worst speller in the world. I sat out here the other day. Greg wrote Pharaoh on the board. And I thought, oh, he didn't spell that right. Because it's A-O-H on the end. Right? It's A-O-H. And I, thought, I was thinking it was O-A-H. And I'm sitting there. I'm like looking in the Bible. I'm like, I think he misspelled. Oh, okay. I was wrong. Okay, so so this may be wrong, all right, but uh, I believe we've accomplished the task. Propitiation. Now, would somebody like to give a definition of propitiation? What does this thing mean? Take the place of? Okay, okay. Let's say, let's use another pen here. To appease wrath. A pro- propitiation is something that appeases. It's a, something that appe- appeases wrath. Okay? Now let's talk about for you. Now say what you just said again. Now the for you part... You desperately, as a sinner, need to be covered, don't you? God, when he looks at a sinner, he needs his wrath appeased. He needs his judgment turned away. He needs a substitute, doesn't he? To satisfy his righteous anger with sin. But you need something. Something you need a covering, right? You need a covering. Now, if I were to write a nice theological word up there for covering, and you've also heard Greg say this before, and he usually says it when he says propitiation, but I always remember propitiation as a word. Okay, what's the what would be the next? And it starts with an E. Expiation. Very good. Okay. These are both good words because they communicate in very 
succinct form, a powerful concept. You need a covering for your sin. You need a covering for your sin. And God needs His wrath. He must do something to turn His away. He needs His wrath with sinners appeased. So let's hold on there for a second. Now, the word Passover is an interesting word. It's an interesting word. If you dig into a commentary, uh, the commentators, um, almost all of them will say, you know, we can't really pinpoint an exact definition for this particular word. But you know what? This particular word means many different kind of you know, as they as they go back and they look at the foundations of the word, means protection, appeasement, and to skip. So even in the very foundation of the word Passover, which is a complicated word to accurately totally translate, we've got elements of expiation, protection, or covering. We've got elements of propitiation, appeasement. And then we've got elements of skipping over, all tied up in this word Passover. And so it's like God almost gave us a definition of the word Passover and what he wrote after it. The blood shall be a sign for you. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. So the household who has slaughtered their lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, they can rest inside the house knowing that they have a covering. They have a covering and that God is going to pass over and not slay their firstborn male. They've got a covering and they can have great assurance because the covering is there for all to see. Right? On the other hand, we also have that God is seeing this blood. God sees the blood. And God's wrath is therefore appeased. So, it's for the people. It protects them. It's their protection. It's their surety. They've got the blood. If there's just the blood there, then we know that we will escape this judgment. Okay? And for God, He sees the blood and He accepts that substitute. The death of the substitute in the place of the firstborn. God redeems through substitution. God redeems through substitution. The means of deliverance in the Scriptures Always a substitute. His wrath must be appeased by the death of a sinner. The wages of sin is death. And this goes all the way to the very earliest parts of the Bible. With David and Grace this week, we've been going through Genesis. The first death. What was the context of the first death of anybody or anything right after the sin of Adam and Eve when God killed the animals to clothe them? They got a clothing, a covering. 
okay, from the death of an animal. And then we see that Abel brings an accepted sacrifice, an animal. Okay? It goes all the way through with Isaac as Abraham brings Isaac to the altar to slay him. What does God do? He provides a ram, a substitute. We all deserve death. And the Bible is teaching us from the earliest moments the fact that God's wrath can only be appeased through a substitute. Through a substitute. And now, obviously, doesn't take a lot of imagination here to equate what's going on here, to see all these pictures of substitution going right up to Jesus Christ, right? Turn over, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, and we'll end there. Doesn't take any explanation. Doesn't take any explanation to see that the Passover is pointing to Christ. It's pointing to Christ. In fact, maybe it's one of the most perfect pictures of Christ in all of the Old Testament. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Let's just meditate on this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus gives us a covering. His blood, his righteousness, and the substitution in our place, his death in our place, he took on our sin. He becomes the sin bearer and is executed before God. The true firstborn, by the way, is executed for God, before God, being the bearer of our sin. This, Christian, is what is going to save you for all eternity. All of those plagues that we read about last week, the trumpets and the bold judgments, all of those things where they talk about hail and blood and darkness and death, all of these things will be turned away from you. Jesus has suffered all of those plagues for you when He suffered before God on the cross. And what are you going to get? What are you going to get? A new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. He will wipe away there every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall they be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, 
for the former things have passed away. Jesus Christ is your covering. He's your propitiation. And these plagues won't have anything to do with you. You will get eternal life with Christ forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, uh, what an impressive picture of Jesus Christ we see in the Passover. And we've just barely touched on it. Lord, we pray that that we would turn our hearts and our devotion completely to Him, that we would rest comfortably in His shed blood for us. Lord, forgive us for our unbelief, our lack of faith, and help us to to just, just have faith in Christ that He has completed all Your requirements for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.